Welcome back to The Invitation, where businessman Daniel Ross is engaged in a spirited debate with someone claiming to be Jesus. They're discussing how many pathways there really are to heaven. In the midst of that conversation, Jesus stuns Daniel by making this remark. Okay, look, Yesh, I agree that there has to be some transcendent being and not just this physical presence. I mean, you've done a great job of poking holes in all these other religions. Mm -hmm. But I have to tell you, from my perspective, it seems that all religions, including Christianity, are nothing more than a path to the same place. I mean, we are all looking to God for... Well, are, are you looking to God? Look, like I was saying, I believe that all people are looking to God or looking for God in their own way. I mean, that's what I love about the church that my friends Tom and Paula attend. I mean, they embrace everyone there. I mean, they meet you right where, they're at, right where you're at, and they help you on this path to God. You know, there's just one problem with that kind of thinking. And that's what? Dan, there is no path to God. Sir, your yes. salad. Thank you very much. And your salad, sir. Oh, thank you, Maria. It looks delicious. Thank Is you. Is everything all right? Yes. Excellent. Good. Thank you. Yes, I have to tell you, you know, you said something that's really bothering me a few minutes ago. What's that? You said that there's no path to God. I mean, doesn't all religion claim to reach a way to God? Well, there is a way to God, just not, not a path. But what I mean is, well, when you're traveling down a path, you're going by your own energy, and it's usually because you picked out a certain destination that you want to go to. That kind of path can't be found to God. I mean, you can't work your way to God. No such path exists. Wait a minute. Isn't that what religion's all about, finding God? I mean, how can you say otherwise? Well, did you ever get in trouble when you were a kid? <laughs> I don't think this place stays open late enough for all my troublemaking history. <laughs> I'll tell you what, uh, it must have been pretty bad, so why don't you just give me a highlight, okay? All right. I remember once as a kid. Yeah. My mother, she used to make these Christmas decorations. Uh, I don't even know what she used them for, but they were these little drummer boy drums. And she used to take this red and green cray paper and attach it to the sides. And then she would attach these spearmint lifesavers. Well, I love spearmint lifesavers, i got to tell you. She kept this stuff in the laundry room on top of the washer and dryer. So one day I snuck in there and took one of the lifesavers. I was passing through the kitchen where Mom was to head outside and play. Got outside and I couldn't get the wrapper off fast enough. Popped that lifesaver in my mouth and I could never suck them. I had to chew them. So I just chomped that baby down and decided I wanted another one. Headed back into the house. Mom was in the kitchen as I went by. I just looked at her and said, hey, I forgot something. Back into the laundry room I went. This happened several times. And finally, about the third or fourth time through, my mom kind of got wise to me. And I was in the laundry room, and I was plucking those lifesavers as fast as I could because one was just not going to be enough. And just as I got my two little hands full of lifesavers, yeah. the laundry room door opened up, and there was mom. <laughs> it wasn't pretty. I mean... As I recall, that was the first spanking that I ever got. My dad did it when he got home because he always used to do it. 
I mean, and you know the funny part? He wasn't even mad. I mean, he did it because mom was mad. So in other words, your dad did all the spanking in the home. He did. Mom was the one that always caught us. But dad, well, you know, thinking about it, dad really didn't spank that much. I mean, I'll bet I didn't get a half a dozen spankings growing up. Why not? Well, it wasn't because I didn't deserve them. But <laughs> that just wasn't my father's way of doing things. I mean, he would talk to us and he would sit down and explain to us that what we had done was wrong and he would help us to understand why. And then he would have us go and apologize to whomever it was, especially if it was my mother. Yes. Well, it sounds like your dad had an awful lot in common with God. How so? Well, when you did something wrong, he had you admit it. And then he had you apologize. Your father was very interested in restoring a relationship. Hmm. I guess that's true. But I've got to tell you, I never really thought of my father that way. Well, God, God is a lot like that as well, Daniel. He, he created this whole universe to enjoy his love. He's not interested in people performing well for him. In fact, to talk about being good enough is kind of irrelevant. The reality is that people have, have rejected God. They've, they've moved away from God. And now God's in the business of trying to reconcile humanity back together again. Let me ask you a question. Um, if your daughter, uh, when she gets older, disobeys you, I mean, really upsets you, how many dishes will she have to do in order to sit on your lap and get a <laughs> hug from you? None. Okay, well, how many A's will she have to earn in school? Oh, that's ridiculous. Well, why? Well, because she's my daughter, and I love her. Exactly. Look, what you're saying is, is that there's no way that we can earn our way to God? You know, a lot of people think that that's how they're going to make it into heaven. Take Muslims, for instance. They have many things that they feel they need to do in order to qualify, and one of them is to pray. How many prayers does a Muslim have to pray in order to be good enough? <laughs> I don't know. They don't know either, and that's the problem. They never know if they've prayed enough, if they've fasted enough, if they've given enough, if they've gone on enough pilgrimages. I mean, Hindus have the same struggle. They never know if they've lived enough lives to achieve karma. Buddhists never know if they've given a good enough effort to enter into nirvana. Yeah, but... Christianity is no different. I mean, you could never know if you've done enough good to work your way into heaven. No, they can know for certain. They can't. There's nothing that you can do or anybody can do that's going to earn their way into heaven. You can't try to get into heaven on your own effort. But, but what about the people who go to church every Sunday, they put their money in the basket every Sunday, they live this good life thinking that that's going to get them into heaven? I mean... Mrs. Willard, my Sunday school teacher, she certainly seemed to think that that would be good enough. Well, I hate to tell you this, but she was wrong. It, it isn't good enough. So that you, what you're saying is, is that even if we do everything right, I mean, we follow the Ten Commandments, do what God calls us to do, none of it's going to get us into heaven. That's absolutely correct. Then let me ask you something, Yesh. Why do them? There's great profit in being obedient to God. Understand that, Daniel. It's just not going to get you into heaven. Now, you're a Star Trek fan, right? 
oh, I like the next generation, but I didn't get into the follow-ups. Well, there's this episode where there's a, a tear in the universe, and a galaxy is going to be destroyed if, uh, if it's not fixed. Now, I want you to think about this with me. There's, there's a moral fabric to this universe. It's an overthrow of God's creation, the way he designed it. Mm-hmm. And there's a tear in that moral fabric, mm-hmm. and that tear is caused by, well, people's sin. You know, I would agree that humanity is pretty messed up right now, but who's to say that humanity isn't evolving spiritually? I mean, we could take the attitude of my friends and jump on their bus and head towards that universal harmony that's happening out there, couldn't we? Well, humanity's separation from God, Daniel, is, is far greater than, than people realize. I mean, just, well, look around you right now. I mean, think about how much bitterness there is, war, selfishness, hatred, envy, abuse, prejudice. I mean, the list seems endless, doesn't it? I mean, do you think God created people to be that way? Yeah, but I think some of those things are getting better. Really? In this last century, how many people do you think were murdered by their own government? I don't know, probably somewhere around 500 million. How many do you think were killed in war? I would guess about the same. In what century do you think the most people were killed for the faith? Let's see. The last one? You're right. You've got a lot of the facts down right. But do you think that there was also an increase in ecological damage, exploitation of the poor? Do you think immorality is more rampant than it's ever been? You know, there's a rip in this universe. And God stands on one side of it, and you stand on the other. And there is no way for you to fix it. It's, you know, you cannot move closer to God. It's not going to happen. See, it's irrelevant to talk about all this. Trying to be good enough is not what's going to get anybody into heaven. Nobody can be good enough. I mean, humans are rejected. God. They're separated from him, and there's no possible way to reestablish that relationship, Daniel. Why not? Well, because only God is big enough to fix that rip in the universe. Well, here we are. Mm. Thank you very much. Your meal, sir. Thank you. And your Sam. That looks delicious. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, enjoy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great portions here, huh? Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, um, do, you, do you have something I can write on? I do. I just wanted to... Business wow, card, okay? Quite a stash you got there. Daniel, yeah. are you buying lunch? No, no. Dinner? We already had an agreement, I believe, that right. you had... You're not going back on that, are you? I, I'm not. I'm just having a little bit of... Because if you are, this is going back. I'm just having a little fun with all you. All right. I mean, the Lord has humor. They're all singles anyway. Okay. As long as you tithe on it, Daniel, that's all that matters. Yeah. Now. I'm working on it. Let me ask you a question. All right? Um, who's the best person you know? Living or dead? I, either. How about Mother Teresa? She had a pretty good reputation. Okay. I'm going to put her right here at the top of the card. Mother Teresa. All right? Mm-hmm. Who is the worst person that you can think of? Mm, that's easy, Hitler. Okay, so we'll put Hitler 
here at the bottom of the cart. Now, you tell me, where would you fall on that scale? Hmm. Wait a second. How can I answer that? I mean, if I put my name up here by Mother Teresa, I'm looking pretty vain. And I'm not putting my name down here by Hitler because I have not killed anybody. Okay. Not going to. Where do you think? All right, look. How about right there? Now, what do I win? Nothing. But I'll tell you how you stack up in God's eyes. Now, you put Mother Teresa at the top. Mm-hmm. You put Hitler at the bottom. And you put yourself just a little north of center. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, this card is in a really good scale to, to really differentiate between you know, humanity and God. To really appreciate it, we'd have to take this card, downtown Chicago, and put it at the base of Sears Tower. Look straight up, and the top of the tower is God's standard, over 100 stories tall. Wait a second. I got a problem with that. I mean, essentially, what you're saying is that in God's eyes, Mother Teresa and Hitler are basically the same? No. Hitler was a horrible human being. And uh, Mother Teresa did many good things, not the same. The point is that, well, Mother Teresa, in all of her goodness, still cannot cross the gap to God. Hitler can't either. They're both sinners, and on their own merits, they remain separated from God. So you're saying that no one can earn their way to God? No, no one can. Not on their, er- not on their own merits. It's impossible. See, God's standard, Daniel, is perfection. And you wouldn't want it any other way. Wait, what do you mean I wouldn't want it any other way? Why not? You wouldn't want uh, God ruling this universe who is less than perfectly holy and perfectly just. Again, why not? Because it would offend your God-given sense of justice that God's instilled in you. I mean, what would it be like to live in a universe where crime is never punished, where if your daughter is hurt, There's no justice where evil reigns unopposed. God has to deal with sin because it sabotages his creation. He cares so much for his creation. I mean, can you imagine if God had looked at Hitler and just said to him, you know, we all make mistakes, don't worry about it? Yeah, but we're not all Hitler. All right. That's true, that we're all rebels. Every human being is a rebel. They've rebelled against God. See, the problem is we tend to think about rebellion in these, you know, horrific outward acts that you see in the culture. Uh, The truth is the sin issue in the world is more like a cancer, not a heart attack. It's very gradual. It's not murder that's destroying the universe. It's things like selfishness and resentment and Mm -hmm. envy. I mean, it's those daily sins that come from a common root, that root of cancer, and God has to get rid of that cancer. Absolutely, I agree, but, I mean, we've all felt those things. I mean, we're human. Yes. Look, it just doesn't seem fair to me that God sees everyone the same. I mean, some people are just worse than others. Well, listen, everybody's going to get what they deserve, so to speak. But you have to understand that humanity itself is under God's judgment. Everyone has broken God's moral law. And no amount of goodness is, is going to get them back. On, on what basis do you think you're going to stand before God someday and say, I was good enough? Now, you've read The Lord of the Flies, right? 
I mean, it's a story about a group of boys who shipwrecked their boat and they form the society and, mm-hmm. and brutality becomes the way they treat each other. They brutalize each other. I have. All right. Well, why do you think that brutality became the norm for them? Well, they were separated from civilization. I mean, and they were there for a long time. And over that period of time, I'm sure that they forgot what's right and what's wrong. I mean, at the very least, those boys were messed up. Okay. In other words, they lacked a compass to guide them through life. Humanity is the exact same way. I mean, people cannot work themselves back to God again. People are caught in what the world, the Bible calls sin. And here's the strange thing, Daniel. The longer you're in it, you, you become numb to it. You get used to it. It becomes normal, like a goldfish in a, in a bowl of water. It only knows water. It seems normal to it. It doesn't think twice about it. And what's happening in this world is that, well, people have lost the sense of the abhorrence of sin. But to God, it's absolutely disgusting because his standard is so holy. So what do people do? They try to water down God's holiness like Islam does. Like Islam? You've got to be kidding me. If there's one thing that the Muslims emphasize, it's God's justice and his punishment of wickedness. That's what they say. But ask what happens on Judgment Day. And what they'll tell you is that if your good deeds are put on this balance scale and they're greater than your bad deeds, then Allah gives you a free ride in paradise. So? So, Allah cannot be perfectly just and then also show mercy that way. I mean, it doesn't come down to whether I did enough good to outweigh my bad. I mean, that kind of justice doesn't even work in your world, court system. I mean, take for instance, let's say you were uh, committing fraud, and you got caught, and you were arrested, and convicted, and the judge looked at you. Do you think the judge is going to say, you know, Daniel, you, you've been a kind little league coach. You were always good to those kids, so I'm just going to excuse this whole thing, and I'm not going to hold you accountable for it. Listen, you know, the same thing is true with Allah. I mean, if Allah is going to be perfectly just, he has to punish every single sin. And in that case, then, there's no way into paradise. But, but I thought God was forgiving. I mean, what you're implying is, is that because of justice, God is unable to forgive. No, God is forgiving. I mean, he longs to forgive this world. But God is also just, and he's not going to forgive at the expense of his justice. People have to pay the penalty of their sins. Somebody has to make it possible so that others can be forgiven. God's justice demands it. Okay, so, so what do we have to do to get back to God? Well, God had two options. First option was he could let you and the rest of humanity pay for your own sins, but in that option, you remain eternally separated from God. No, no, no. I don't like that one. So you got anything better than that? Or God could pay the penalty. How? Well, he is God. The creator is greater than the creation. And if God chooses and desires, he can actually pay that penalty. And because he's perfect, it meets the demand of perfect justice. Okay, but why would God do that? Let me ask you something. I want you to imagine, God forbid, that your daughter turns 17. She starts to run with the wrong crowd, and she becomes a heroin addict. In the process, she murders somebody. She's found, she's convicted, and the judge hands down the sentence that she has to die 
because of her crime, death penalty. But he makes this strange exception. He says that if somebody wants, they can take her place and die for her. Would you? I suppose I would. Well, why? Because she's my daughter, and I love her, and I would want to give her an opportunity to have the rest of her life to make it a good one. Danny, do you think that God loves you any less than you love your daughter? I don't know. Maybe. I'm just not sure. Let me tell you a story about two fifth-grade boys. Okay. Um, One was really good in school. The other struggled. They had been best buddies. It's the end of the school year, and there's this huge math test that they have to take. The kid who struggles in school, if he doesn't get at least a C, he not only fails the test, but he has to repeat the grade again. So they take the test. They're out at recess. The kid who's good in school looks at his buddy and says, how did you do on the test? And his buddy just hangs his head and he said, you know, I'm pretty sure I flunked this. So the kid who's really good at school, he kind of disappears, runs into school, somehow makes his way into the classroom. He starts shuffling through all these tests. He finds his and he finds his friends. He takes his test and he erases his name and he writes his friend's name on it. He takes his friend's test, he erases his friend's name, and he puts his own on it. That's all? Yeah. You expecting more? (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, there's got to be more. Because when the teacher comes back into the room to grade those tests, she's going to have to recognize that something's been changed. No, that's the end of the story. So tell me, what does it teach you? Well, I guess what it teaches me is that the first boy was willing to sacrifice his grade for his friends so that he could pass. And what would have happened if that second boy had failed? Well, he probably would have been held back. That's right. And then what? Well, I guess they wouldn't have gotten to finish school together, would they? No, they would not have. You see, God longs to have a relationship with you. God longs to have a relationship with every human being on earth. And that's why God, in his love and his mercy, took on the penalty that every human being should take on themselves and died their death for them so he could turn around and then offer them this free gift. Okay, so what do you got to do to get it? Just receive it, that's all. You don't have to do anything? No. And how do you do that? Trust. And that's what all relationships are ultimately about is trust. Then you have to trust that God loves you. And you got to trust that you can't cross that divide over to him but that he's crossed it for you and you've got to trust that he paid the penalty and that he offers you forgiveness and then you've got to place your trust in that free gift and live your life according to his power that's at work in you God offers you that free gift look yes I don't get it I mean I always thought that the Bible taught that Jesus died on the cross not God Danny, I am God. Well, there are not many paths to God, but there is one way. Why is it that people think, though, that there can be many pathways to God? 
I think if you were to step back and ask that question, you could come up with a couple of different things. First of all, paths are man-made. I don't know if you've ever been out in nature. Even in the wintertime, you can tell where people have walked. And oftentimes when you're looking out there, you'll either create your own path. We talk about trailblazers. Or you'll see a path that somebody has already walked. It's well-worn. That means it's easier to go on, and you take that pathway. Religion is man's search for God. That's how religion is defined. And all these paths are the different ways that people have tried to search God out. And so you can have Hinduism and Buddhism and Confucianism and all the other isms that are out there. Even though there are many paths leading to God, whoever God is, whatever God is, he, she, or it, they all seem to have one thing in common when you study them, when you step back and look at them. The thing that they all seem to have in common is that they carry this mindset, this idea that the way you eventually get to your destination, to God, whoever and whatever or it ever is, is you have to try to be the best you that you can be. And so salvation or arriving spiritually is all about being the best person that you could ever possibly be. Now when you step back and begin to think about that, it really speaks of human engineering, doesn't it? Because that's like us. That's how we think. That's how we do life. That's how we measure others and each other and what we do is we get an idea in our minds that if there is a God that he must think the way we do and so life is all about being the best me that I could possibly be the problem with that is who said that I mean did a voice come out of nowhere and say that if you want to be connected to this life force universal life force you need to be really 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 good And if it's all about being good enough, then who decides what is good enough? What group decides that? Because let's face it, there are some people, we talked about Hitler and Mother Teresa, who really don't measure up to goodness. Where do you then draw that line and say, if you're below that line, you're in trouble. If you're above that line, you're okay. Now you're into what Islam teaches and believes. Or you go to Hinduism and it's just a matter of being reborn and living life over and over and over again in different entities until finally you're good enough to achieve. Or you're into Buddhism now where it's all about effort and getting to that place where you're so able to tune out your desires and feelings and emotions that you somehow become one with the force around you. And I don't know about you, but for all the criticism that is leveled against Christianity and for all the intolerance that's seen there and for As many people as make fun of Christianity, I step back and I look at that kind of thinking and it looks really ridiculous to me. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Where does this whole idea come from that's all about achieving? It's all about being good enough. Well, it comes from our pride. It comes from that bent in us that says, I really want to direct my own show. I just want to make sure at the end, I end up in a good place. I have this sense in me that there's more to life than just this life. And I want to get there and I want to be ready. It's an interesting article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal. 
talks about this new grouping of people called religious independence. What's interesting about it is that religious independents are those who are not necessarily Christian, but they're not turning toward atheism. They're really buying into and believing that there is a spiritual creative force that has brought this all into being, but that force can't really be known intimately, like Christianity teaches and other religions might talk about. And what that force requires from us is that we just simply have a good ethic, that we behave well. It really doesn't matter what we believe. In America, the percentage of those who claim to be Christian is down from 86% to about 76% now. And the more education you have, listen carefully, parents, the more education you have after high school, the more likely it is that you will buy into this new religious independent thinking. That it's all about ethics. It's all about behaving the right way. That that's all this creative force expects of you. But we're back to an ancient story when we look at that. Those people in Genesis who tried to build a tower up to heaven. Maybe you remember that story, the Tower of Babel. They tried to create this tower up to heaven as though they could achieve God's status or they could somehow impress God. It was all on their own basis. And We're just living that over again. We're just trying to make our way to heaven and define God in a way that will accommodate what we believe and think. And God stands back and looks at it like he must have looked at the Tower of Babel and he shakes his head because all those paths are leading nowhere. I mean, when you think about what God has revealed about himself through his word, through his son, Jesus Christ, there's nothing very human about it. A God who claims to be perfect and who demands that if we're going to make it, so to speak, we have to be perfect. No human came up with that. That a human was involved, somehow we would find a way to achieve and impress God or outwit God or do a deal with God. But God says, no. God says, I'm perfect. I demand that you be perfect and you're not. And there's no way for you to move from this side of brokenness to this side of wholeness but God who the Bible describes in his very nature is love God through his son Jesus Christ spanned the rip in the moral fabric of the universe and God offers his son that's what Christmas is all about it's the birth of the lamb that God gives to be a perfect sacrifice to meet God's perfect justice so that there can be forgiveness and so jesus stands in the gap he takes hold of his father's hand and he takes a hold of your hand and my hand and through his death he brings both hands together and places ours in the father's hand and the father therefore declares us not guilty based on what his son has done for us and god therefore says I can now adopt you into my family and one day what you realize spiritually will be realized in every aspect of your life. You will be with me forever. Now that makes sense. And that's ultimately what Christmas is really all about. And the great question we all have to answer this morning is have we allowed Jesus to reconcile us to his Father? Have we placed our faith and trust in him alone, in God's way alone, as the only way. 
to truly be rescued, to truly be saved, to truly have the hope of eternity. Would you bow your heads with me, please, and close your eyes and ask that no one leaves. But in these sacred moments between you and the Lord and me as your pastor, can I ask you, have you given your life completely to Christ? Have you accepted that he is the only way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by any other path except through me. Paul wrote, for by God's generous grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, not by any human achievement, not by any kind of works, lest somebody could boast and say, look what I've done to earn salvation. No. We're just simply saved, reconciled to God by receiving what He's already done for us and putting the full weight of our trust in Him. If you're here this morning, you've not done that, or you're unsure if you've ever done that, the greatest Christmas gift you could give yourself, your loved one, your friends, the greatest Christmas gift you could give God would be to hand him your life. And so this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So with our heads bowed, I wonder if there are some here this morning that will join others from last night and our earlier service by just standing right where you are as your way of saying, God, I'm giving you my life. It doesn't matter how old or how young you are, whether you're on the floor or in the balcony. Is there anyone who would stand and say, Lord, I'm giving you my life today? Your standing is your way of saying, God, my life belongs to you. I've been unsure, I'm making sure. I've been following different paths, I want to follow your path. If you're standing, silently pray this prayer with me, would you please? Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I admit I'm not on the wrong, I admit I'm on the wrong path. And I want to travel on your only way. Jesus Christ. Forgive my sins. I now place my trust in you alone as my hope and my salvation. You can be seated. Father, you have heard those who sincerely prayed that prayer this morning. And I ask, O oh God, that you would bear witness with their spirit through your Holy Spirit that you indeed have come into the life, that they are forgiven and that they have been set free. And this is indeed the reason you came on Christmas. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that we don't have to be confused about where we're going, and we don't have to try to achieve it on our own strength. Thank you for doing it for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you give a hand for those who stood and made their decision this morning? Welcome to God's family, and after our service is over, would you mind joining our new guests and just come see me at the guest center? Shake my hand, and all I want you to do is say to me, I prayed the prayer. I want to give you some information and encourage you, because you can't do the journey alone. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. You should be thrilled and excited. God is at work in your life. Let's all stand together. The guests, I hope to see you. I'm looking forward to see you on Christmas Eve. It's going to be a wonderful celebration. 
then don't forget next weekend what a message that is going to be. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for those who gave their hearts to you this morning. Thank you for our hope, Jesus Christ. In your precious name we pray, amen.